I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film, or occasionally a TV show. Today we're talking about the pilot episode of Breaking Bad, created by Vince Gilligan. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Yo. <laughs> Perfect. Wow. Yeah. That was, was great. really good. Wow. <laughs> Uh, okay, recover. <laughs> and Alex Cayeros. Hi. We're going to talk about Breaking Bad, focusing on the pilot. Obviously, there's a, a Lesson Trump screenplay video made many years ago now that touched on it. And there's just a lot of things to talk about with Breaking Bad, how you create the engine of a show, but also the cultural effect that the show went on to have, all these things. First, we want to throw out a question to Spotify listeners, which is, besides Breaking Bad, what is your favorite TV pilot? Mm-hmm. Think about it. And let us know. I like that you paused for a response. <laughs> <laughs> Shout it at your iPhone right now. <laughs> awesome. So why don't we quickly just kind of go around and, and talk about each of our relationships with Breaking Bad, because it's a show that some people are obsessed with diehard fans. Some people are more kind of in the, yeah, yeah, it's good. I feel like I'm kind of more toward the latter side, where I highly respect it and have no problem with the critical acclaim that it has, but I can't say that I super duper enjoyed watching it, but it is a very well-constructed TV show and obviously a very well-constructed TV pilot. I'm curious to hear from you guys what your relationships with it are. Trisha, what about you? Yeah, I think I'm more on the side of the spectrum that you are, Michael. I was a latecomer to the show because I have mental blockage about TV. Like, episodic (laughs) TV is not something that I am good at watching, especially when it's, like, being dropped week by week. This is not a fun game, but, like, if you were to name any of the, like, most major shows of the last two decades, especially if they premiered week by week, I wouldn't have seen them probably, or I would have come to them later and watched like watch the whole thing after it's over. And such is the case with Breaking Bad. So it was completely and totally over by the time I started watching it. But I did manage to avoid learning how it ended. And so oh, nice. I got into it on my own and just was watching it on my own. I didn't binge it because to me, I can't watch more than like two episodes in a row before I just get super overwhelmed. Sick to your stomach. Mm. yeah just like and yeah yes all of those feelings that come along with breaking bad where you're like i shouldn't be laughing this is one of the worst things ever (laughs) um but yeah so then and then watching the last season i remember particularly and even in the last few episodes where i really didn't know how it had ended i had successfully avoided learning that and was just the most stressed i think i was like live posting about it on Facebook or on Twitter. And I was just like, why is anybody letting me watch this by myself? This is terrible. Very similar where I just have a lot of respect for the show. It's not my favorite show, but it's it's not super close to me or meaningful to me as an intellectual exercise and as a very taut five seasons of television. There's pretty much nothing better. Yeah. And as as we're talking about, it's undeniably effective. So yes. you cannot take that away from it. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Brian, what about you? Uh, yeah, I am a big fan of the show. I first discovered it, I think it was around the beginning of the third season um, or maybe the end of the second season. Like around that time, there were a bunch of shows I wanted to catch up on, but I was like, there's so many seasons of The West Wing and The Sopranos and things like that, where I was like, it's going to be so much work to actually 
catch mm-hmm. up on these shows. So I sort of just started deciding I can't just watch things when people recommend them to me. I have to watch things when like four people recommend them to me. This was also around the time that Twitter was uh, was starting. And I just remember Breaking Bad and Downton Abbey being two shows where it was just <laughs> like, yep. you just could not avoid the hype, you know? So after I saw enough people that I like specifically followed and respected their opinions, say, you got to watch Breaking Bad. You got to watch Downton Abbey. I was like, I will do both those things. Very similar shows. Very, Very similar shows. Did you watch shows. them at yeah. the same yeah. time? Like- <laughs> no, I didn't. I watched okay. Downton Abbey a little later. Uh, yeah, I watched Breaking Bad first uh, of those two. <laughs> Downton Abbey has nothing to do with this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember it as the other example of something where it was like I couldn't avoid the hype. Uh-huh. And I was like, cool, I'll check it out. And I, then I got into it. But uh, yeah, my friend and I watched the pilot. We'd both heard about it. And he said, that's one of the best pilots I've ever seen in my life. And I said, yeah, it was really good, but I wasn't hooked on the show yet, but I liked it a lot. And then I watched episodes two and three. And by the end of three, I was like, okay, I am absolutely hooked on this show. I, two, just for the like, holy crap factor. And three, for the like, the show is really, really smart and and effective mm-hmm. at doing what it does. Uh, and I won't go into like the details in case anybody is like, I just watched the pilot for the first time ever. And I'm listening to the episode. So we won't go into like post pilot details. Then I was hooked and then I loved it and I and I just started watching it and, you know, caught up to when it was live and then, of course, watched it all the time. My friends and I were fans and would talk about it. We'd go over to each other's houses and watch and stuff. I was Walt for Halloween one year because, of course, I was. <laughs> and then for the, the series finale, uh, I had about a dozen friends come over and my roommate at the time had built a theater screen for his own purposes, not just for this. Uh, and we just like <laughs> made a semicircle of chairs around and we just all watched the finale together. And it was just a really cool way to sort of watch this uh, watch this show come to an end that we had all been living with for a few years. Rewatching it now, I just rewatched the first season and uh, I still really, really like it. And it just kind of gives me those same like those same warm feelings of, yes, this is uncomfortable and hard to watch, but also I'm just like so happy with it and I, it just does all the things that i love that's cool yeah it's always fun when you can you know send a show off in a special way mm. sometimes it's like i don't want anyone around me when i watch the finale but sometimes sure. it is really fun that's like let's get a group together and send lost off to the beyond or whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. show it is that you're watching alex what about you what, what are your thoughts on breaking bad it sounds like almost all of us came to the show late like then like none of us saw it from episode one on TV. Uh, and that, I was the same. So I, I had been hearing about it for years to the point where I was kind of resisting it. I was like, yeah, yeah, Breaking Bad. It's like the best thing ever for some reason. I don't get it, but <laughs> I guess I'll have to watch it someday. An opportunity came that let me do what you're talking about, Brian, where it's like you hear all these shows you're supposed to watch. And how, how am I going to choose what to watch? I don't really have time to binge them. And then I had this temporary part-time job <laughs> that gave me a lot of opportunity to multitask and watch things, which was remotely operating a camera in a zoo in China focused <laughs> on pandas. What? So literally my only Cutest job. job ever. And it was, it was like <laughs> China time. So it was like late at night. So basically I was staying up late at night. And I would just occasionally move the camera because the panda would like move from one corner to the other corner. But it was like a big lazy panda that just sat in a corner. (laughs) So so literally I was being paid, I was being paid, you know, like whatever, almost minimum wage or something just to literally like have a camera on a panda. Move to Hollywood, folks. These are the things. This is one of my early, my early Hollywood jobs between uh, bigger editing gigs. But it was great because literally I would just have the panda in a small window on my monitor and then in a bigger window i would have game of thrones or breaking bad (laughs) so i watched i caught up on all game of thrones and all breaking bad 
during that time. Uh, and it was perfect because it was like this extremely like once in a while I get so caught up in Breaking Bad, I would realize the panda had moved. And so I was <laughs> a little bit late. No. But mostly I was able to manage both quite easily. Anyway, so all that said, <laughs> my Breaking Bad experience is wrapped up with Panda Cam. <laughs> and uh, and I and I think like a lot of people, I watched it on Netflix because it, you know, the show was uh, premiered on AMC all the way through the end, but it was dropped on Netflix before mm-hmm. the fourth season. So the first three seasons, you could just binge all on Netflix. And that actually is really responsible for a lot of us latecomers getting into the show and then watching it actually on TV afterwards. And so I was one of those people who just binged. I think it might have even been the first four seasons on Netflix. And I think I might have only been watching it live for the the final two, which is like it was like the fifth season split in half. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, by the time it got, you know, I think probably like midway through the series, like, like I, I was into it the whole time and I was appreciating it. And I, I understood why it was good. But I think yeah, somewhere in the middle, season three and four, it just went over the edge for me of of like, wow, this I've never been into a show like this as far as mm-hmm. just amazed at the complex web of like cause and effect and storytelling that the writers have spun here and how they're holding it all together. The world still feels like extremely real and grounded and everything that's happening is because of a previous event that happened. The continuity of the storytelling was so impressive and then of course just the moment to moment stress and (laughs) tension and the compounding stakes that just keep getting higher and higher so as the show went on i became a big fan i definitely some early seasons felt like a bit of a slog to me uh so i think it really helped that i had panda cam going to get me through them (laughs) and then once once i got past that panda cam era i didn't need panda cam i was good just to focus on the show uh, that is my relationship with Breaking Bad. <laughs> that could probably be a YouTube channel now, also, where it's just like it's someone just playing a, the show. Like, in one, the main part of the screen is Breaking Bad, and then they'll just put a panda, a panda in the corner. Right. Like, in case you're bored, go look at the pandas for a bit. Right. The nights that were that were tough to multitask were baby panda nights. Because uh, once in a while, I was given the baby panda cam and they did move around a lot and roll around. And oh my God. They like a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to yeah. like, I had to do more work those nights, which was you know, <laughs> tough work. <laughs> I just melted into a puddle of cuteness. <laughs> I, I did not know Breaking hey, Bad yeah. was going to take me here. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, Cayeros, the baby panda guy's off tonight. We're giving you your big break. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't screw it up. <laughs> just picture your boss Ugh. is like a big dude with a cigar. It's just like, <laughs> right. If you were someone that was watching baby panda cams in 2011, like, let us know on Twitter also. <laughs> like, I just want to know if those people are out yeah, there. I think it was explore.org was the website where the live feeds could be viewed. Nice. Okay. So now we know a lot about our relationships with Breaking Bad and pandas. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you were just saying, Alex, I think is, is the thing that stands out to me as being mm-hmm. so impressive. And Brian, you mentioned the first two or three episodes. I remember watching those episodes and thinking, how could they possibly sustain a show right. that is escalating this quickly where mm-hmm. things are going so wrong and like I couldn't picture there being anything else but it just keeps going and it maintains that like you're saying Alex cause and effect throughout you know all of that is hinted at and set up the foundation of it anyway in the pilot and that's why 
this pilot is so frequently referenced as being one of the best pilots of all time and why I wanted to make a video about it early in the life of Lessons from the Screenplay. I was trying to come up with a video comparing several different pilots. I think it was going to be Breaking Bad, House of Cards, and a third one that I couldn't remember. And then I reduced it to just (laughs) two, comparing House of Cards and Breaking Bad, but felt like there was just so much to get through that it was it was too much and so i ended up well let's just focus on breaking bad because of its structure and how it very clearly delineates act by act it's easy to track all the things that it's doing and how it's setting up you know it has that great teaser where Mm -hmm. you're thrown into this completely absurd situation and then it jumps back in time we set up his normal world we get a nice clean inciting incident his normal world is shooken up what are you gonna do now he's decided he's gonna cook meth and now we're off to the races with him and his strange allies and you know it's setting up all the the family along the way it's such a great pilot for so many reasons and we can dive into all of them it sets up a very clear engine for this show like you understand who he is Mm -hmm. what his main goal is the world of the show is very clearly communicated tone is very clear tone and the proximity to dangerous all these things are there and it's just it's very very well done yes we definitely want to talk about the pilot itself and the the writing of it and stuff but just because you said tone alex one of my favorite things about the show is like the quirkiness of it The fact that it is this dark, sometimes bleak drama, but that's never afraid to be kind of goofy and there's like a lot of levity. And even if it's something like there's, you know, a shootout happened here and people are dead. It's like the episode opens with like a car that's still bouncing from its hydraulics as like music plays out of the radio. It's like Mm -hmm. just the show itself is being funny, even when the situation isn't funny. And the pilot introduces this right off the bat because you have pants in the sky, (laughs) dude Uh in his whitey tighties at a gas mask. Like what the hell is going on? But also the dude has a gun. The guy next to him is out cold. There are sirens approaching like the guy's about to have a shootout, you know, and it's such a great way to establish this whole pilot. But just the teaser itself, it's such a great way to establish this is a serious show. This isn't a comedy like this isn't a straight comedy. It's a serious show, but we're going to have fun with it. It's going to get weird, like buckle up. That promise was kept throughout the entire series, which is what I really Mm -hmm. appreciate, even as it gets more and more bleak. Mm hmm. I think part of what's so impressive about that teaser is that it's not just quirky. It also has this very serious moment where he's speaking to his family into the video camera. Yeah. And I think without that, it could rub me the wrong way as like, okay, this show's just going to do as much crazy stuff as possible right mm-hmm. off the bat. Like he doesn't have pants on and like everything's just nuts for some reason. And we'll, we'll get here somehow, but like, look how quirky we are. But what sells it for me is that moment where he's speaking to the video camera, which raises so many questions. And, you know, he's crying. It it shows that, you know, he's deeply emotional about whatever has happened or is about to happen. So I think that is a crucial part of that tease to show it's not just quirky for quirky's sake. It's also a very serious character story with real stakes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was when you were talking a minute ago, Michael, about just how much like stuff the show accomplishes and the pilots are really good like sort of microcosm of what the show ended up doing well but even yeah the teaser is a microcosm of that which is right it's putting character front and center Mm -hmm. that is one of the things that this show is renowned for it is known for being so focused on the transformation of walter white from this loser chemistry teacher to being this total badass criminal 
you know, guy, king of the underworld of meth in Albuquerque. (laughs) It puts character front and center. And the way that it does that is to continually confront the character with difficult choices. It's not just that like somebody says something to Walt and Walt changes his mind. That is almost never the case, which I feel like is the default sort of like screenwriter thing or TV writer thing to do. It's like, well, then he talked to Skylar and he changed his mind. It's like that literally never happens in Breaking Bad. (laughs) That's so true. The only thing that changes Walt's mind is that something goes horribly awry in his life. And then he like takes another step down this path that he's on. The show is incredible. And as you pointed out, Alex, weaving together plot elements, which are always funneling Walt into difficult choices. And we see that right at the opening where he he's already in a very difficult position when we first meet him. And then he gets out. He like is being faced with the choice of cops are coming. What do I do? It's a harrowing high stakes decision and it happens in the first two minutes of this pilot episode it's such a good example of what tv can do what all writing really can and should do when it's at its best and vince gilligan you know has talked a lot about first of all he he liked the idea of you know a tv show where the the characters can change because that was still kind of a novel idea in 2008 (laughs) but yeah like understanding why Walt is doing what he's doing. And I think that's everything you're saying. It helps explain that. Like when you understand this conundrum that he's in, where you, he has these crazy choices and he doesn't have a whole lot of options. And we, the audience understand the pressure on him or in, on any of the other characters. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like these changes are coming, you know, at arbitrarily or just like you were saying, Alex, let's be wacky and take them into these crazy places. Like the construction of every choice and the cause and effect, we understand why someone might have fallen down step by step by step by step to where he ends up. And that is very difficult to do for one character, let alone an entire show of characters across five like seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael, going off of what Vince Gilligan wanted to accomplish as far as doing a t- like a multi-season TV show where the characters can change a lot, you know, like not just maybe change a little bit here and there, but like fundamentally change. Mm-hmm. I love how he bakes that into the pilot script in Walt's speech about chemistry, mm-hmm. where he, he literally talks about elements colliding and decomposing and exploding and changing. And it just feels so pointed in that moment. Of like, ah, I see what you're doing here. This is, <laughs> this is your entire philosophy for what this show is going to be. And you're putting it into his chemistry speech. I love it. Uh, which, which is great from a thematic level, too, because it's, it's about chemistry. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of the philosophy of how chemistry works is also kind of how the show works with its adherence to cause and effect and almost like a scientific rigor with how things unfold. It's not things don't just come out of nowhere. They always have a cause. Mm-hmm. Right. And and yeah, the transformation, you know, if you've heard Vince Gilligan talk about Breaking Bad for four to six seconds, you've heard him say, we're going to take Mr. Chips and turn him into Scarface. That's like his <laughs> thing. He said everything. Yeah. <laughs> but we do see that transformation in just the pilot episode. Yes. You know, and so it's not just that we see it over the course of the entire series, but we also see like here is, as you were saying, Tricia, like the series in microcosm, you know, and yeah, I just think that that's a 
really cool thing that the show does. And you know, we talk about act breaks in movies as the point of no return. And very few shows have points of no return where you kind of can't go back to the status quo. And Breaking right. Bad, I feel like, is consistently doing that. Like rewatching the first season, it's like, uh, you know, Walt and Skyler are at a party together, uh, you know, having a nice time. Like, this is weird when you've seen the next four seasons of the show. That can never happen again at a certain point. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, and, <laughs> and it's just, it's a show that is not afraid to say the show that you have loved up until this point it is no longer that show now it is this and that is again as you were saying alex with that speech that change that transformation that consistent evolution of an idea mm-hmm. i think it's also what was so thrilling about the show the longer it went on yeah was it's felt impossible it's like talk about writing yourself into a corner these writers you know you're talking about trisha how walt is constantly confronted with basically impossible situations, impossible odds, impossible choices. That's the the scariest thing to do as a writer. And even scarier if you're trying to do a multi-season TV show. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. how do you constantly put a character into these impossible scenarios when you have to have another season of content after this? Like, that's really challenging. And that's why, as a viewer, it was edge of your seat in a way that no other show had been for me up to that point, because I genuinely could not guess how it could possibly work out or what could possibly happen next so often and that's a great place to be like that's where you want to be where you have faith in this show that whatever does happen is going to be earned and is going to make sense like the show doesn't jump the shark in a way where it gets you out of a situation in a way that feels disingenuous Mm -hmm. that combination of things made it truly thrilling to watch it unfold because you know they're not going to cheat like they they earn my trust at a certain point of like we're not going to cheat and we're going to make it impossible. Yeah, for there's never an easy yeah. way out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had seen these more recently because I've watched lots of interviews with the writing team and stuff. And my recollection is that they, you know, would write the whole season like they would plan. Mm. It, and that's why it all works. Ah, planning. Yeah. Why don't more shows do that? <laughs> well, it was it was a luxury. And so I, I think it's it's the dedication to the the planning of the whole show, but also the ability to have self-restraint and to convince the powers that be to allow there to be limits. Like mm. AMC would want there to be Breaking Bad season 400 if they could, because right. money and let's make it for forever. But having a stop date of, you know, this show will end at the end of the season. Like there is an end point and sorry, we, we can't, take the show anywhere after that you know there were spit there have been spinoffs and they've done other things but mm. i think that's also an important thing and, and a reason why this kind of show differs from a normal tv series is that what's great is that characters can change but you can't change for forever and you have to be changing with a trajectory with an endpoint in mind and so i think the combination of yeah being willing to plan a whole season but also then you know you can they're not doing 22 episodes, right? They're doing 8, 13 episodes. So it's a more reasonable number of things to manage and with an eye constantly on an endpoint. I think those are two critical things if you're going to make this work. I noticed watching the pilot again, they build in a ticking clock into the first episode of he's going to die maybe within two years. So yep. it's like this is not a show that can go on for 10 years because that won't even look realistic on the actors. Right. Mm-hmm. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I also think what's interesting about this pilot is how simple it is. And the, the show, too, is, is almost it appears more simple than it is. But sure. it also isn't overly complicated. Like, I think every scene is doing two things at once, but never feels like it's trying to do right. a million things at once. Mm-hmm. Well, and in the video, Michael, you point out that the show is very easily pitchable and contained in a single premise. And that goes for the pilot. The pilot's premise is the exact premise of the entire show. It never essentially changes its premise. And that premise is incredibly simple. So I think in the the video, you point out that the premise of the show is so-and-so's life gets turned upside down when X happens Mm -hmm. and they decide to do Y, right? Like that basically is what you want from the premise of a show. I mean, it's like what you want from a movie really too. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, you know, implies the essential structure of all of the work that a pilot has to do. You have to set up what the character's life was. The big thing happens that turns their life upside down. And then the big decision they make in response that from where that point spirals out the rest of the show. I've thought a lot about Breaking Bad because it has one of those great premises that like even if you weren't watching the show at the time, which I wasn't you see why it's a show like right away when somebody says it because it has this like wonderful specificity to it where it's like, it's a high school chemistry teacher. Okay, we get that. He gets lung cancer or just any kind of very serious terminal cancer. Okay, we get that. He decides to cook meth. Okay, that we also really understand. The stakes are right there on the surface. The characterization, you don't need a lot to understand a quote-unquote high school chemistry teacher. That's all you really need to know. And Walt is so, like, the most boring version of a high school chemistry teacher. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's like this perfect marriage of the most insane decision because of the high stakes of what happens to him. Looking back at it, the cancer is the one part where I'm just like, eh, really? You know, it's the one sort of, I don't know. But you do get one of those. I know if you need it for the premise, really. No, of course you do. Of course yeah, it's, you it's do. It's such a big change he's making. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And, and it, it does come embedded with really high stakes. But it's the one that it's like, you get one outrageous, unlikely thing. There are a few in here where his brother's DEA agent. And you're like, his brother-in-law is a DEA agent. And, mm-hmm. oh, it's like, it happened to be my former student who happens to be cooking meth on this ride-along that I'm in and whatever. And happened to jump out of the window and only I saw him. And only and I saw sure. him. And yeah, yeah. The, of all of those things, the one that feels like the gimmick a little bit is the terminal cancer diagnosis. Interesting. But mostly that's what makes the show kind of hold together. As you point out, Alex, that's the ticking clock. It also gives him the freedom to yeah. change, you know, because I think, of course, mm-hmm. when you have a terminal diagnosis, suddenly all the equations of how to manage the risk in your life you go out the window. I think without that diagnosis, his change is not believable within this first episode. Mm-hmm. And it's a consistent way throughout the series to 
help us feel sympathetic for Walt, you know, because there is this constant thing, as Vince Gilligan says, I think in the video that uh, that you did, Michael, you don't have to like him, but you have to understand why he's doing what he's doing. Of course, wanting money for his family is an easy way to understand it. But also it's that sort of thing of even if you start to hate a character, the way that the show very consistently makes you question your feelings for him, the more that the character is sort of downtrodden or suffering or dealing with something that you can be sympathetic with what they're dealing with, even if you're not cool with what the character is actually doing, then at least it's sort of it's helpful. Uh, you're not just going like, oh, I, I want you to suffer. On our Mad Men episode, I talked about how I felt like Don Draper got away with too much. Mm-hmm. And that always frustrated me. Mm. And, you know, when you have a character who's literally dying, like there's always this this constant thread over the entire character where you're like, well, OK, but like <laughs> I'm, I'm with you for this next choice because I feel bad for you. But go ahead. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is is happening that helps feed kind of all of this, and Trisha, you mentioned stakes also, is is Walt's family, and yes. yeah, the, you know, you have that great premise, like you're saying, where it just you hear that and you're like, okay, I get it, that's a TV show, and then you meet his family and you see that it's not just Walt that's downtrodden, made fun of, like he has this son, and like his, like them as a family are struggling. Mm-hmm. It's not just I want money for my family, but like I want my family to be okay. It kind of like gets to expand into that realm. And I think that helps us getting to know his family helps us be even more on his side for those reasons. And at the same time, this is why I think the surprise party scene is maybe the exception to what I said earlier, where the surprise party does a lot because it's also introducing Hank and Mm -hmm. Marie Mm -hmm. and just a lot of the dynamics, how Walt feels about both of them, how Skylar feels about both of them. How how people feel about Walt. Right. And how they feel about their son feeling how he feels about there's there Mm. are just a lot of familial dynamics set up there. And it also then gets to introduce the other great part of the premise and what makes the engine of the, sh- the show go, as you mentioned, Trisha, Hank being a DA agent, which is like, again, on paper is like, wow, okay, that's like kind of convenient, but it's so great, right? It's yeah. like your, your worst enemy is in the family. You're constantly, you know, a conversation or a trip to the bathroom away from being found out. If you are going to do a show where characters are making are put in extreme positions like having terminal cancer and are making extreme decisions in reaction to the situation that they are now in, which is the entire premise of the show, then you might as well go big with loading the rest of the design of the show with stakes and this like very real, as you're talking about the specificity, the wife is pregnant. Mm -hmm. The son is disabled. The brother-in-law is a DEA agent and also the worst guy ever. (laughs) (laughs) Hank sucks so much. He's just like, I'm just here being a racist and a jerk all the time. Knowing the word sage is like gay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Jesse is a screw up, right? Like you're surrounding Walt with all of these threats and hazards and stakes at every moment. So like, that's why those don't bother me as much as the cancer thing does in terms of like convenience, because the cancer thing is kind of the bedrock of it all in terms of like extremity. But then once you have that, you might as well put all the rest of it onto Wild's shoulders and make it as impossible and tricky for him to navigate as you possibly can. It's also really interesting to reflect on how this just has to be an American show because, well, yeah. mm. uh, one, you have to believably think that there's no way his health insurance would like cover his cancer treatment, that he would be guaranteed, you know, comprehensive yep. health coverage. 
you have to believe that a teacher would need a second job for sure to mm-hmm. support a family of, you know, three. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like all these things that are built into the pilot are just so like, oh, yeah, like this, this is all built on the premise of like, you won't have health care, you won't have enough money as a teacher, like all these very sad, it's an implicit, sad indictment of American life just already baked into that pilot that mm-hmm. the best solution for this man is to become a drug dealer <laughs> to support his family and i'm so glad they decided to set it in albuquerque it turned out to be so like such a great choice because i read the pilot and the pilot is set in southern california oh interesting it's not that i don't think it's believable that walt could live there or that there's like a meth scene there or here or <laughs> anywhere, right? Like, <laughs> right. It's not necessarily that. I just think, again, going back to a lot of the specific elements that make the show feel like the world is, you know, pretty contained. Walt can't just like leave. They have this life. It's Albuquerque. It doesn't feel like the police force is that huge. Like, there's all of these things where it feels like, you know, it's reasonable to expect that. The DEA knows exactly who Crazy Eight is and that he could be a CI, you know, and all, all of this stuff where there is this sort of regional flair to it, which they really lean into with the music and the mm-hmm. Southwestern culture and all of this stuff that ended up becoming hallmark sort of of the tone of the show. So I'm just glad it didn't end up like sort of here. We're so used to shows set in Southern California. Right. I just can't imagine the show not being set in Albuquerque now that we like have it and know what it is. Yeah, exactly. We're we're inundated with New York and LA and DC as like the setting of every show. I mean, usually DC only because the show like has to take place in DC. But mm-hmm. and I, I guess usually that's true of LA too. But obviously, we know behind the scenes, a lot of shows are set in LA because that's where people are, and they don't want to have to go anywhere. But yeah, I've always felt that Breaking Bad gets a sort of not a gimmick, but a novelty from being set in Albuquerque and, as you were saying, Trisha, leaning into that and actually using that so that it it gives the show its own identity and doesn't just feel like, here's another one of these. Yeah. I also feel like there's almost a weird optimism to Los Angeles or California, like as a cultural thing. Like, I think what's interesting about noir films that are set in LA is that there's, there's people have to have hope in order for them to be, you know, spit out by life i don't know there's i feel like him existing in california i wouldn't feel as bad about him or his prospects mm-hmm. even though that doesn't actually make <laughs> sense there's just like a a cultural sense of california that i think would kind of right. muddy up his despair he's a coastal elite <laughs> right or something or, or there's just more access to resources it feels like like there is something about the geography of the desert in like literature that signals a lack of resources that mm-hmm. signals a right. sense of desperation yeah. where there's it's like this wasteland of yeah hope opportunity whatever even though albuquerque is like a thriving city you know and it's right yeah. but i'm just saying culturally we associate desert landscapes with you know just this sort of scarcity and i think that the show really operates on that where there isn't enough money, there isn't enough healthcare or whatever. Like, so it just is sort of thematically supporting everything else that the show is already kind of doing in a really smart way. Yeah. If you live in Santa Monica and you want to go out to the desert and you drive an hour east, you're just still in LA. There's not really, say. you're not trapped in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, like him being like driving distance to one of the most famous cities in the world, I feel like would change just the context yeah. a little bit. Yeah. But and so this is kind of getting into one of my complicated feelings around Breaking Bad, which is this thing that I love and respect about it and hate and makes me not want to watch it all at the same time, which which is its setting, which is its world and its style. And just the, you know, we've talked about me and sand, right? So we don't need to go over that. All right. Anakin, Anakin Skywalker <laughs> mm-hmm. here. There is this unremarkability to all of the show. Like it, you know, you're, you're setting up his normal world and it's not trying to glamorize any part of it, right? You're, there's yeah. the monotony, the spaces, the colors, all of it. None of it is, like exciting or vibrant in any way, which makes sense. I think what's interesting, and this is a part that I respect about it, is that even the life of crime isn't done up in any way. Right. Right. Like <laughs> if you have a Wolf of Wall Street or something like that, a lot of time is spent on how much fun it is to do drugs and go crazy and be bad, right? Like ultimately the lesson learned is, you know, these are bad things. But the filmmaking spends time kind of trying to convince the audience that breaking the rules would be fun or something. Even in the little montages of cooking meth and all that stuff that happens in Breaking Bad, it never has a a glamour or aesthetic allure, either just visually or in the filmmaking, that I think is cool and that it it never makes you be like, I should maybe think about cooking meth. Like, like there isn't a whole lot of that there. But then also at the same time, it makes me not enjoy looking at this show. Mm, uh, and so that's kind of the weird, and just, you know, it's all handheld and the lighting is very plain and like it's all doing work and it's all fine, but it personally is, it makes it, there's a, a barrier there for me a little bit. Yeah, it's intentionally not a beautiful show. Mm-hmm. It's right. very grimy, People are in their underwear you don't want to look at in their underwear. Like it's it's, <laughs> it's not giving you the the usual like TV imagery that we're inundated with, which which is like, oh, this protagonist is also a model, and so it's like fun when they're naked, and you know, like none of that is happening. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like, oh, this is gross. It's a melted body. Like there's goo. <laughs> there's industrial waste. Like this is yeah. not pleasant yeah. to take into my senses. Yeah, I mean, I would argue, though, that particularly the meth montages, and we get into this a little bit in the pilot episode as well. It's like every episode, there's a meth montage. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Michael in the video talked about how the fourth act of this is like fun and games, which Mm -hmm. it also is the crisis and climax of the the episode. But before that, it like promises like, here's what the sort of hijinks part of the show is going to be. And that's cooking meth. Right. And that's kind of where the show ends up having the most fun sort of with the cinematography. That's where like all the most, you know, iconic music tracks that they picked, you know, end up playing during sort of like cooking meth montages. And I do think there's a stylishness to them. I agree there's not necessarily a glamour, but there's the fun of watching expertise at work. Yeah. I think that the show really trades on how much we enjoy watching people who are good at what they do, no matter what it is. Yeah, And so I think that in those meth cooking montages, especially when you're seeing Walt like measuring like, you know, microscopic, you know, things of this and grabbing all of his beakers and jars and containers and, and all of this stuff, you know, the colors are kind of too vibrant. They're, they're lurid a little bit, but they're much brighter than 
the rest of the way that like Albuquerque's all in beige, you know, and all of the houses look the same and this kind of thing. I'll say as someone who grew up in Chandler, Arizona, that is an accurate portrayal of the color palette of these places. <laughs> all right. It is all beige for yeah. some reason. We can't have any color there. Right. But then when they're when they're in the trailer, you're seeing this like neon yellow smoke pouring out of it or red smoke or whatever. Right. I think there is that level of trying to make it appealing in the way that it would be to the character where you're seeing Walt in his element and you're understanding why Walt is kind of liking it because this is what he does well. Yeah, definitely. I think style is such an interesting thing. Uh, obviously, we've talked about it in plenty of, of episodes, uh, Moulin Rouge and Scott Pilgrim <laughs> and things like that. And obviously, Breaking Bad is not that extreme. But one time that style can uh, bother me is when it's like, it's just two characters having a conversation, but they're like, let's put the camera on the table behind a water glass. So you're going to see them reflect, refracted through the thing. You know, you can do like one shot like that per a scene, maybe or something <laughs> and kind of get away with it. But it's just sort of where it's like, I can, I'm still paying attention to the conversation that's happening. And every once in a right. while, you're doing something stylish. But what I've always appreciated about Breaking Bad is for the most part, the meat and potatoes of the show is shot and treated in a fairly traditional way, uh, mm -hmm. even if it is a little grainy and handheld and things like that. And then it's during the teasers and during the montages and stuff where right. it's like, why not strap a GoPro to this oil drum and play Rodrigo and Gabriela and stuff? Because <laughs> all you're communicating is like this barrel went from point A to point B. Let's have I fun with Michael it. I knew Michael would love it. <laughs> I almost stopped watching the, the show anytime there was like, why am I on a broom right now? Why, who put this camera on a broom? It's on funny. a fly? <laughs> no, don't get me started on the fly. <laughs> I was going to bring up fly because, you know, that was Ryan Johnson's first foray yeah, to yeah, Breaking yeah. Bad. Mm. Mm -hmm. But he also directed your favorite episode and also my favorite episode, Ozymandias, the second to last episode of the whole series. And I, right. you know, when I think of that episode and the way it's shot, and, and there were episodes throughout the whole series that felt like they, they were elevated. There were certain sequences mm -hmm. or pivotal moments that felt very special. So I think when it comes to style, I would say the average episode was shot rather plainly and has a color palette that is almost kind of grotesque or yeah, overly yellow and beige. But the the show also knew how to bring in feeling of specialness to those pivotal moments that I do respect. Because I also get really irritated kind of back in the day of, you know, 24 and old style TV when a really important thing would happen. And stylistically, the show is still just doing like the same shaky cam documentary thing at that moment. So this important moment breezes by because of this kind of generic flat adherence to one style. And I think Breaking Bad does know when to, you know, here's this really important moment. It's going to be actually more of a dolly shot that circles around somebody to reveal something about their face. You know, there's times when it chooses to bring out a more cinematic, not just default flat style. And there are some shows before Breaking Bad in the kind of more network TV world that didn't even bother to do, to do that. It was just kind of this, you never had a sense that there was a director of any particular sort for any given episode. In Breaking Bad, there are some special episodes where you can tell this is a vision. This is a Ryan Johnson episode or whoever. Mm. Mm -hmm. The show overall, and we see it in the pilot too, has a really nice sense of punctuation. And by that, I mean, when each act ends, 
there's a button on the end of every scene, whether that's mm. visual, mm-hmm. whether that's like a sound cue, whether that's a really great line. Is it the end of the second or the third episode that ends with Walt showing up and just going, want to cook? Mm. Like it's there's every single break where something has shifted, which, again, this show is incredible at things are always changing. We are never moving in reverse. We are always moving forward, 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 forward through each act of the pilot, through each episode of the show. We are never where back where we started. And with each shift, there's a little bit of a an exclamation point or a period or whatever it is. There's a, that sense of punctuation right at the end of like, and the shift has occurred. And it's not afraid to be a little flashy, a little on the nose. Somebody always has the perfect thing to say. <laughs> or there's the more often than not, it's just an incredible expression on Brian Cranston's face, right? But I think it's all three of the first acts of the pilot end with an incredible expression on Walt's face. And it's like off Walt <laughs> as he realizes, but boom, right? right. Off Walt right. as this. Yeah. But and I think kind of all of this ties into the moment that the show came out and was being released. And we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but that it was happening in this transitional phase of network TV. Now we have AMC making Mad Men and Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead, like TV was changing and kind of bridging us into Netflix. And so kind of like what what you were talking about earlier, Alex, of, you know, in network TV shows, the big moments have just as much time or are done in the exact same style as the rest of it. And it's because they don't have time and a network mm-hmm. TV schedule to right. do anything special. It's like rehearse the day and you get three takes and then we're moving on because we got to make another TV show tomorrow or whatever it is. As Breaking Bad went on, I think they also had more freedom to go more toward the cinematic style and kind of Mad Men toward the end of its life was Mm -hmm. able to up its production value. And then when House of Cards dropped, right, that was kind of the big announcement of like, now TV shows are movies as far as production value. David Fincher is directing Uh the beginning of this show. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So it is just kind of interesting of this being a, a relic of the time and kind of being this bridge that took us from what TV was to what TV is and could be. And I think all these things are kind of tied up in that just the economics even of that transition that was happening. Well, and one thing that struck me as early as the pilot was the sound design, because mm. even if some scenes are kind of shot plainly, you can hear a lot of work going into the sound design. I, I One moment that struck me in the pilot was when it cuts to Walt's going to the MRI machine or whatever yeah. mm. machine. It, it just the sound of that moment is so intense and surrounds you. And it's like a oppressive weight coming down on him and and there were moments throughout the pilot that felt special in that way they weren't just doing once again the bare minimum flat sound design job they were doing storytelling through sound Mm -hmm. and that only got more uh, incredible throughout the show when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing I want to highlight also that you were you were talking about a minute ago, Tricia, is how much fun the show has watching Walt be 
extremely good at a thing, right? The, mm-hmm. the expertise. Someone was saying that that's some interview I watched. One of the elements you need to have in a TV show is what is your protagonist's superpower, quote unquote, mm. like what makes them yeah, yeah, yeah. special. And obviously Waltz is his, you know, he's a boring high school chemistry teacher, but he used to be a genius chemistry teacher mm-hmm. and he's entering this unknown world. He's an expert at the science of it and doesn't have any of the knowledge of how to actually sell drugs. And so he has this this superpower of I can make an excellent product, but I need help. I need a partner to navigate this world. You know, that being Jesse is just such a fun design also because sure. obviously they're so different. And so there's also you get like on top of everything else, you get a little bit of a buddy comedy almost. Definitely. The odd couple of science teacher and his former student making meth together. It's somehow a delightful, fun thing to watch. And yeah, just sets up that relationship also. And I think that's kind of another, you know, it's kind of well known, I think at this point that Jesse wasn't supposed to be in the whole show, Mm -hmm. or maybe it was just the actor. No, he was supposed, the character was supposed to get killed off at the end of the first season. Yeah. And and I feel like identifying that relationship in that pilot kind of is this extra ingredient special sauce that kind of comes in on top of it that creates this other weird relationship. So it's not just Walt out there for his family. It's that happening, but it's also this weird friendship. And a lot of the later seasons are are dealing with their relationship. Yeah. And what did Walt do for Jesse, what did he do to Jesse? Some mm, of the yeah. most famous scenes are <laughs> Walt's acting or not acting and you know, all, all those things. So I think that's just another thing I wanted to make sure we talked about is this this extra ingredient of Jesse that is set up in this episode and then wisely identified and, and continued on throughout the season makes it also Jesse's just fun to yeah. yes. hear some great lines. <laughs> yeah. Magnets. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Also, it's funny because um, we talk so much. It's so easy to talk about Brian Cranston and, and Aaron Paul till you're blue in the face, obviously. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, like they're just they're so good, obviously. And like they get all the credit. But I also want to bring up Anna Gunn and Betsy Brandt. Yeah. Mm. Because I have the Boromir problem with them, which is like the first time I saw Lord of the Rings, I didn't think Sean Bean was a good actor because when he was on screen, I was unhappy <laughs> because <laughs> that's the character design, so you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause he's so good. And then obviously you watch it back and you're like, Oh, you're so good. And it's funny because if you watch interviews with either Anna Gunn or Betsy Brandt, they just seem like the coolest, funnest, like raddest people in the world. And they have the unfortunate, you know, they, they have to play the, the characters who are always sort of in the way of the characters that you're, even if rooting for is not the right word, the, the characters that you are sort of focused on. And it is just a joy to watch the show back where you're not full of tension going, oh, no, this person is going to find out and I don't want them to find out. So, like, I, I want them to not be here and just actually appreciate how good they both are at playing these somewhat over the top, somewhat, you know, snarky and, you know, just Anagon especially can just communicate so much with just a, like an exhalation. Of like, <laughs> uh, so I just want to shout that out because I feel like they don't get yeah. enough credit for just being awesome. For sure. For Anagon sure. is so good. And I love the evolution of her character throughout the series. Right. And I mean, her character in the later seasons is maybe my favorite. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love I love her character. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to Jesse for a minute, I think that one of the things that makes their dynamic so fun is that, you know, as you point out, Walt has the expertise in this one area and and Jesse has kind of expertise in another area. Experience. However, (laughs) 
Jesse has the kind of personality where he is absolutely sure that he is right, Mm. even when he is very wrong. (laughs) That is a wonderful character to have. It makes him funny, right? Because he lacks self-awareness. We talk about comedic characters are characters that lack Mm self-awareness. Now, Walt is not like that. He ends up being kind of funny at times. Um, And it's usually when he messes something up because he's overestimated his ability or he's underestimated somebody else. It's not that he lacks self-awareness in the same way that Jesse does. And we see that dynamic right when Walt is unpacking the gear. You know, he's stolen all the chemistry gear from the lab. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jesse's like, well, I cook in one of these flasks. And Walt's like, no, you don't, you idiot. That's the (laughs) wrong flask for that. This is what a boiling flask is for. But Jesse doesn't just let it drop. He's like, no, that's how I cook. That's what I do. Like, it's really awesome to have an assertive character. It raises that level of conflict, even one that's wrong all the time. Like, you know, (laughs) Jesse quickly learns that he is wrong about what, you know, which flask he should be using to cook in. But it still, like, doesn't humble him in any way. (laughs) By the very next episode... He's doing something else that is completely wrong and a total script, but he is sure that he is right about it. And it's such a wonderful character design and dynamic for those two to have. Walt, who is actually right about most things, Jesse, who is wrong, but thinks he's right. And that's where it's like constantly Walt is ending up trying to like deal with the mistakes that Jesse continually gets them into. Mm. It's so brilliant to design characters whose fundamental personality traits are so at odds. You know, that's yes. that's that's what you want from a cast of characters. Always. I know I've mentioned it so many times how much I love it. Collateral, Fight Club, Breaking Bad, True Detective. Like it's just put two people in a room who don't belong in a room together and just put a camera on them for an hour and you'll be entertained. Like like who they are at their core right. is like antithesis of the other the other's beliefs mm-hmm. <laughs> right exactly and as you were touching on a little bit trisha the sort of idea that they're both right and they're both wrong so you're it's not just right i'm watching this character i'm rooting for talk to a character i'm absolutely not rooting for it's you're going oh that's a good point though even if i'm kind of on this person's side i agree right. with what you just said yeah jesse does know things that walt doesn't know right it's not like walt never makes mistakes where like the whole reason they end up having to steal like the methylamine and and make you know what ends up being the blue meth that they make for most of the show is because walt is you know scaling up production without talking to jesse about it and doesn't understand all of the difficulty of like we can't get enough Sudafed and all this stuff that's just one example but it goes on and on throughout this whole thing where you know it's walt's idea to go to crazy eight in the pilot episode like Oh, we, you know, we let's go talk to this guy. He's a bigger distributor. He's the guy, you know, behind the guy. And then that turns out to be, you know, sort of the downfall where they end up having to commit a couple of murders just right off the bat. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Off to a good start. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's this kind of the the built in contradiction within each character. And then like between the characters, it's just there's endless permutations of put them in this situation and they're going to have different opinions on what should happen. And maybe we'll know that one is right. Maybe we'll know one is wrong. But as you're saying, Trisha, they both think they're right. And that's the most, right. that's where all the conflict comes from and makes it endlessly enjoyable, quote unquote, enjoyable to watch over and over again, <laughs> episode to episode. I have one last thing I want to talk about real quick before we wrap up, which is something I've always found fascinating about different shows or movies is trying to 
analyze myself and say, why do I feel more connected and sort of at home in this space than other spaces? And I think there's something to be said for setting this show in a suburban landscape is it's so familiar and familial to have this house that you're constantly coming back to. So even if Walt is cooking at the mm-hmm. super lab or flying to another country to make a deal or you know is has a gun pointed to his head, he comes home at the end of the day to this this home, then that's sort of cheating. You can't just say every show should be set in suburbia. But I think it's not about that as much as it's about having that that grounded space that makes us feel sort of at home. Uh, in our X-Men video, we talked about the warm house, which I think, Trisha, you found in uh, in Truby's book. Mm-hmm. And it's it doesn't have to be a suburban house. It can be the Millennium Falcon, the Bridge of the Enterprise, Winterfell, the Avengers Compound. You can have these crazy spaces, but there is a space that it gives you the sense as the audience of, oh, okay, we're home. That's where shows like Westworld can sort of suffer is, mm. is like everywhere is sort of disorienting and off-putting and unfamiliar you don't get that feeling of groundedness and some shows some movies are about characters off an adventure indiana jones or whatever so it's like there isn't room for that space to come back to obviously but i just always think a show works really well when i can watch it and feel like this feels totally crazy and unfamiliar but this feels familiar and so i'm always sort of being brought back to just sort of a sense of like yeah i grew up in this neighborhood or, or whatever. And different people grow up in different neighborhoods, obviously, but just a sense of that sense of something grounded, something that you can latch on to. Mm-hmm. And I think it's doing double duty in that it's doing that. And also, you know, we talked about in the favorite, there's this recurring place where the two kind right. of main opponents come and they shoot a gun together. And every time we they're there, it's like a new check-in of what has changed since the last time we were here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's definitely something that's happening in breaking bad also is that walt mm-hmm. always comes home but he's a different person every time he comes home and that it lets us kind of keep track and have something to, to compare against so that we're clocking how different things are uh when when he gets home right mm-hmm. and as breaking bad continues that sense of home becomes more and more challenged and more and more hard to maintain obviously and that but then that is it's using that thing to do a different thing with the show than it is using in the early episodes, you know? So I just, yeah, for some reason, it's just, I, I really appreciate that the show never leaves the white house uh, of as, as a <laughs> as a sense of a place that exists yeah. and sort of is like, is that grounded area, even if Walt may or may not be living there at the time, you know, it sort of always exists as this constant idea. Right. I love in the pilot script when it cuts to, it's like exterior, white house, night, that's what the slug line says. The next line of action down says, no president has ever lived here. <laughs> That's so good. There's a lot of I cheeky know. stuff in the in the pilot script, which I really appreciate. A lot of reader candy. It's a really great pilot script. <laughs> yeah. You should definitely check it out. In which Jesse is named Marion Dupree. <laughs> wow. Yep. I have could, no idea how slash that. when they changed it, but thank God. <laughs> yeah. Just to close out this thought, Frank, it's a really interesting point you raise. We don't necessarily need that constant home space in an Indiana Jones movie, but I think it's a really good point about like Westworld, for example. To sustain a story over an entire season or multiple seasons, to never have any continuity of space or to have there be no real... Yeah, the, if, no sense of orientation ever or like a returning to. Mm-hmm. There is something that is off-putting about that. Like I, it was hard for me to connect to 
a lot of Westworld once it was in all these different times and spaces and places that I don't really know when is when and where is where. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, there, you kind of lose, you lose contact with the show after a certain point. So I never thought about it that way, but that's a really good point that an ongoing series, I think does need some familiar touchstone throughout. Otherwise mm-hmm. it does. There's a disorientation that sets in. Mm-hmm. The reason Westworld specifically comes to mind is that the, fake world in Westworld is crazy, but then the real world in Westworld is also crazy. (laughs) And that's the thing where it's like, you're always going back and forth between crazy worlds instead of like, even the matrix where the real world is the crazier world, you're still just on the board of Nebuchadnezzar hanging out with people who are eating, you know, sloppy food and that kind of thing. (laughs) Like you still have a sense of, of groundedness, of warmth, of home there Mm -hmm. yeah definitely well because meaning is relative right and like you know dynamics are important but if everything is loud if there is nowhere that is home then every you know you lose track of that meaning or the significance of it being different like if everything is different it's all the same Mm-hmm. <sighs> yada 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 I, <laughs> there's a lot there and settings affect us psychologically too as we talked about right. the desert earlier right so right. Shruby's book I think is the one that we used when we were talking about X-Men but yeah there are lots of other archetypes of like here's how, what, how we psychologically associate with oceans here's how we associate with like cars and travel like road trip movies and mm-hmm. things like that so yeah looking into some of those things is always really helpful if you're designing something you know totally new out of the blue kind of thing um thinking about the way that the spaces can act as those kinds of psychological markers right like game of thrones like so many mm-hmm. spaces of game of thrones immediately kind of ground you in a certain mood or or you know this is where these people live and this is their storyline now if everybody in Game of Thrones was just like constantly changing locations and exploring the universe in every episode, I don't think you would have the connection you have to certain characters. Like this is people in the Red Keep. This is people in Winterfell. This is mm-hmm. you know, Daenerys overseas. So yeah, just the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm realizing setting really is important to keep in mind for for these bigger, complicated stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really want to show cavemen like a buddy road trip movie and just see like what they would make of that. Like, would they have, (laughs) would they deduce the same meaning about cars that we do? Or is that? I mean, show cavemen any movie of any sort and see if they just like run away screaming. All right. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, there is a point at which it starts to get subjective where, you know, a car means one thing to somebody who lived out of their car for 10 years versus somebody who never saw a car until they were 20 years old or something like that, obviously, you know. But of course, that's not what you're talking about, Trisha. You're talking about the the wider cultural meaning, especially right. if, if your audience is a certain country or a certain even hemisphere, there is a wider cultural understood meaning, even if that thing doesn't mean the same thing to all people. Mm-hmm. That we pick up from a lifetime of watching movies. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely a good lesson. And why don't we add on to it by going around and saying what other lessons we're going to take away from Breaking Bad. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, Michael, you mentioned the surprise party scene as doing a lot of things at once. And and that scene really struck me on this rewatch, just how much character is revealed so efficiently and so fluidly in that sequence, because that's where we meet Walt's extended family. We meet his brother-in-law, we meet uh, Skyler's sister. Every moment in that surprise party is revealing character. And it's it's small things, but it, it they tell you so much about who everybody is. Like, you know exactly who Hank is when he's 
you know, talking about oh, the, yeah. <laughs> when he's getting his gun out and Walt comes that it's heavy and he makes some comment about like masculinity. Uh, it, it's mm-hmm. and Dean Norris is great. Also. I know we also like, have to the shout performance out Dean is perfect. <laughs> yeah, Dean Norris is so good. Yes, yes, he's so good. The way Skylar and Marie interact right off the bat, you know, Marie's already like doing these subtle digs and criticisms of Skylar just in casual conversation with a third friend. <laughs> so it's, about her pregnant sister? Like, it's <laughs> so right. rude. Yeah. Like, it's wrong that she's might be showing that she's pregnant. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's so genius because it's, look, she's hardly showing at all. She's showing a little bit and then Skylar introduces Marie to the third friend. Like, she yeah. doesn't even, this is a total stranger <laughs> This to is her. my sister. <laughs> Ultimately, the lesson is, first of all, yeah, you can be revealing character with every single line of dialogue if you're a great writer. What a better show this is because everybody in Walt's family are, like have such distinct personalities and mm-hmm. are all at odds with each other in different ways. Like there's no generic wife character in this show. There's no, no generic yeah. cop. You know, it, everybody is a real three-dimensional personality that are poking and prodding and pulling at each other because there's there is a bad version of the show where he has generic pregnant wife or and his enemy is generic cop Mm brother-in-law and it would be it would be such a blah show uh but it's so much more than that because of these uh three-dimensional characters i do feel like one of my problems with the early seasons is that the bad guys seem a little bit generic bad guy e to me but obviously as the show goes on there are some wonderful antagonists like the and best challengers. bad guy ever. Just yeah. Bring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, I want to just talk briefly about the department store scene because mm-hmm. I was thinking about so much happens in this pilot. The pilot covers so much ground in terms of plot toward getting us from Walt is this, you know, high school chemistry teacher all the way through the end of the premise, which is he is now cooking meth to provide for his family and is willing to commit murder. You know, murder is a big word by comparison to the murders he commits later. Later, right. sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> In self-defense. Yeah. This one is very self-defense-y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of the pilot. But the show has so much work to do. And yet you cannot, even forcing Walt into the decisions that he's making that are directly related to the A plot, it's kind of not reasonable to expect the character to get all the way there at the end of the pilot. And so I think the department store scene is brilliant for that reason, because it's a middle stepping stone. Like, I think it would feel like a bigger step than you could make if you didn't have that scene between, you know, Walt is rude to his boss when he quits his job at the car wash. Okay, we see him stand up for himself. Sure. But that's a far cry from, I'm going to stand up to these drug dealers, you know, out in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. So I think having that middle stepping stone scene, and the first season did this quite a bit, they they stopped kind of having time for it, and we maybe stopped needing it as the seasons went on. But having a scene that's essentially a B-plot, that isn't in any way related to the A plot of the meth cooking and the law enforcement and Walt's going to get caught. Jesse's going to mess it up. The drug dealers are going to kill him. Like not related to that at all. Just related to what preps Walt to make this choice. And the department store scene is perfect for that, where it's like Walt is being prepped to make a choice that he's never made before to do something physically violent 
to stand up for himself, not just to like yell at his boss at the car wash, but to actually kick out the back of the knee of this like big football player looking dude and be willing to put, you know, his body into an altercation. Potentially, he's willing to get hit in the face, Mm -hmm. basically, to stand up for himself and his family. It's such a good like stepping stone scene right in there. And it does other things, too. It gives us more of what what the world of Albuquerque is. It gives us more of the family dynamic with him and Skylar and and Walt Jr. and all of this stuff. But it's a great little button to the end of act. I think it's act three. Yeah. And then it goes into act four right after that, where after that scene, we're ready to buy Walt as someone who's willing to stand up for himself physically, which I think we really need. Right. You really get the sense that he's arrived at I have nothing to lose. And that gives me power in a way that I didn't have before. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a good observation. Brian. Weirdly around this time, talking about what shows were at this time, there was the like ongoing thing of Breaking Bad Weeds, the Big C, the the bored suburban parent with nothing to lose decided to go for broken. Uh-huh. And Weeds super annoyed me in its later seasons because they would do these big no turning back moments. And then by the next episode or two, it would just be back to normal and it was fine. So it'd just mm-hmm. be like, oh my gosh, season finale. Can you believe it? And then like one or two episodes later, it's like, but that didn't really matter. No, there was no, mm-hmm. you know, no consequence. What I've always loved about Breaking Bad, as we talked about a lot this episode, is all the consequences, the cause and effect, as you were talking about early on, Alex, and the show having all these no turning back points where once X happens, you will never have anything beforehand. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the show is run over multiple seasons, uh, multiple episodes. But even if you just look at the pilot, there are open threads that, you know, have to be addressed immediately. The RV is mm-hmm. stuck. There are bodies in it, you know, right? Like you, you have to, you can't start episode two where they just dump the bodies in the desert and drove away and no one ever finds them, obviously. Like, no one's going to be on board with that show. And it compels the audience to go, I have to watch the second episode to find out how they're going to get out of this this jam. And then you have the longer play open threads that a lesser show could sweep under the rug. Crazy Eight's car, the gas mask that gets thrown out into the desert, the missing mm-hmm. chemistry equipment, all these things that I don't know when they made the pilot if they were planting those things. Or if as they were writing the rest of the season, they said, ooh, there's a gas mask, there's chemistry equipment, let's use that. It doesn't really matter because the pilot does plant those seeds either way by just opening these threads and planting these things along the way. And then there's the very big picture things that we talked about. Walt is dying. Skylar is pregnant. Hank's a DEA agent. How are Walt and Jesse going to actually be able to distribute this meth? Are they actually going to get money to do anything like is anything gonna actually work Mm -hmm. out for these characters so yeah i think if you're if you're writing a pilot place those nodes throughout plant those seeds that can grow into things later and if you are pitching a whole season or a whole show or you are writing a show think about those cause and effects because as soon as you do something that then doesn't have the sort of expected effect or it's just just gets swept under the rug then people are going to stop trusting the show they're going to stop believing that the show is quote unquote real the way you suspend your disbelief and and that kind of thing and i just think breaking bad the pilot and the show itself is such a good example of everything that happens has an effect and it just makes it all feel more earned and it's just look these seeds are there it's free conflict it's free drama for you to go write in a, in a future episode which is why it's even more frustrating when a show is like no that didn't matter that person who, you know, that character shot and left in a dumpster and has never heard from again is fine. And it's like, but okay, but but you could have done stuff with it. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the plot version of kind of what I was trying to get at with the with that scene in the department store, which is that like big shifts are the result of, of smaller incremental shifts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At this show, I have no idea how they managed to break Walt's transformation down into like 900 incremental shifts. <laughs> but, they did, but they did that with the plot. Right. Yeah. They were like, what's the next next logical tiny thing that happens with the gas mask? Well, then Hank comes to see him at the school about it. What's mm-hmm. the next tiny thing that happens? And it's that progression. But it's always moving forward that keeps the show going. Yeah, it's a scary thing to try to do. Right. Because, you know, if you if you've planted seeds that then once they sprout are pointing you in a different direction than you had maybe intended. Right. If you if you plant mm-hmm. seeds without knowing how they're going to pay off it can potentially bite you in the foot if you are not flexible enough and so i think that's for me that's the thing that i'm impressed by is that somehow this team of creators were able to ride this narrow little you know walk this line of we have we know where it's going but also Every day is a new day and things are going to happen and you have to improvise. And suddenly Jesse is a main character, like Mm -hmm. things like that. Where It's like to balance those two things is is very difficult. But obviously, when you can do it, it pays off and creates this immersive world that you completely believe in, like you're saying, Brian. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think one thing I want to shout out real quick is that this was a very small writing team. I think it was Vince Gilligan Mm. and and six other people or something was the main. I don't know how many people actually wrote in the show, but the sort of the main group of people that I feel like there are shows where one person writes an entire season of True Detective and you're like, that's great. And there are other shows where entire one person writes an entire other season of True Detective and you're like, you shouldn't have done that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that's a lot, obviously, for someone to write all of that. But what you hear most of the time is 24 people in a writer's room and everyone's going off and writing their own episode and that kind of thing. And just like with our team, it sort of feels like that four to six area is it's small enough that people aren't off getting confused and it's, you know, but it's also there are enough people that People can challenge each other's ideas and bounce ideas off that you're getting a lot more out of it than you would if you just had one person trying to do everything themselves. Right. Yeah. There's like the whole other side of like writing, which is like just social dynamics and group selection Mm -hmm. and how like humans interact and work. And yeah, so so some of it is also, I think, just, you know, there's probably a little bit of lightning in the bottleness happening behind the scenes. Always. But I also feel like the show is clearly all the work that they did ended up in the show and yeah it's amazing and you could always have brian cranston who's weighing in on the character right so like brian cranston was notoriously vocal in feedback when he would get scripts that was like i don't think walt's ready for this yet or i don't think this is how walt would respond kind of thing and because there was vince gillian is there and there's a small writing team they're able to take notes from an actor who's that plugged in um and has shaped the character that much so also you know just casting as we always get to (laughs) end up at my lesson is basically to everything we've just talked about but that that there's really quickly going back to our video about a few good men and our podcast where we talked about turning up the pressure and trisha you found that really great truby quote of you know as the near the story near the end of the story the pressure gets greater and greater on the protagonist the walls Mm -hmm. are even closing in right the space they navigate gets smaller and smaller i was thinking about that while watching the pilot this time and in a tv show like this it's it's different right because the path that the protagonist takes is much 
longer. But I feel like what all of these things that we're talking about does in Breaking Bad is that it it points toward some specific possible paths that Walt can go down. Mm-hmm. And for each option. So first of all, it's not, you know, just open. We don't know what's going to happen. It's like, okay, there are some directions that he could choose to go. And in each direction, we understand how the pressure can eventually get to him. You know, we know that his Hank is the DEA agent. So we know that there's can be pressure coming in from that side. And so there's there's just kind of this image that appeared in my head of like this this little circle that's the pilot and there are little branches branching off. And each one has this built-in pressure that will build up until it mm-hmm. explodes and creates a new branch. And the audience understands what that could potentially be in each one. Like we know there is danger ahead. And that's why we want to keep watching. Right. So, yeah. So I think that's just, again, this shows the craft that has been put into the show is really incredible. And that's why it's worth looking at and studying all of it, because it's all a beautiful example of what to do when you're writing a story. Mm -hmm. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Brian, what have you been watching recently? I watched the third season of American Gods, uh, which... The book by Neil Gaiman is one of my favorite books of all time, uh, and I enjoyed the first season. I was always I was really interested in what it was going to be like. The show is way more stylized than I personally would want it to be, but once I settled into that, I was okay with it. Ricky Whittle plays the main character Shadow, and he is perfect. Ian McShane is not at all what I pictured for the character of Mr. Wednesday, but it's Ian McShane, so what are you going to do? I love him. Uh, he's fantastic, yeah. Emily Browning is great. Jillian Anderson is in the first season, and she's amazing. But there's been a ton of drama behind the scenes of this show. So each season has had a different showrunner. Cast members have left or been replaced, uh, which, you know, when some of the characters are gods, you can just write why they've been, <laughs> why they just have right. new faces. But ultimately, it makes the show, it makes for a show that feels really uneven from episode to episode or season to season. And the second season, I was, I, I didn't mind it, but it was just sort of felt like, all right, the show feels kind of all over the place. But this season, I really enjoyed. They brought it back to the book. So I got to finally meet a lot of characters from the second half of the book that are have finally been introduced to the show. And they've all been really well cast. And yeah, as a fan of the book, it's hard to know who I can recommend it to just because it's hard to know if you haven't read it, how are you going to feel about the show? It's it's a very stylized, weird show. Yes, Trisha? I'm a fan of the book, so you can recommend it to me. I, and I also don't know if I want to recommend it to fans of the book because of how weird okay, the show is. Different. <laughs> but I would say for anybody, it's it's worth checking out just because it's a it's a really interesting show that's fun to watch. And if you were watching and sort of tuned out, I would say tune back in to get to the third season because I've been really enjoying it. Hmm, nice. Yeah. Awesome. Alex, what have you been watching? I've been watching the documentary series Alan V. Farrow on HBO Max. Oh, boy. Heavy stuff. It's really interesting because it's, so it's, it's directed by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. And they're this documentary team that for the last several years has really basically just kind of almost exclusively been tackling the subject of sexual abuse or sexual harassment um, in their documentaries. So they did The Invisible War about you know, like sexual assault in the military hunting ground about sexual assault in college campuses and then on the record which i had i don't know that much about but it was a, kind of a story about um a woman in the kind of hip-hop recording industry and like mm. what it's been like for her as a woman and some of the sexual harassment or pressure she's felt in that industry so this is obviously about woody allen and mia farrow and the legal battles and kind of the story that, that 
around uh, their daughter, Dylan Farrow. It's really, really well done. It's it's interesting because you look at like Rotten Tomatoes and it's one of those where it's like 90 percent, you know, certified fresh by reviewers and then like 46 percent, you know, rotten uh, from mm-hmm. uh-huh. uh, average people. And a lot of the complaints are just simply like, this isn't an even handed documentary. It's one sided. I don't think the documentary is pretending to be, quote unquote, even handed as in like presenting like a case, like a strong case for like two right. sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. It's a story about Dylan Farrow, uh, who is the, you know, the survivor telling her story, Mia Farrow telling her story. They opened the interviews to Al- uh, Woody Allen. He didn't participate. And so it's interesting because the documentary begins more in just the like the story as told by Mia Farrow's family and friends of like what her her life was like in, back in this era when she dated Woody Allen and like just gives you the, all the context for this event. And then the second half goes into more public like court documents where prosecutors were saying what a social worker wrote down that talked to Dylan like and so it's like I feel like half those reviews were probably just from the first episode because it's a very personal like story being told and the the documentary becomes more and more undeniable as it gets into the public arena and the court battles and and documents that really show what happened i i think it's really worth watching and it's it's a very difficult subject to cover but i feel like this documentary team has because they've done multiple films and shows about this subject matter has have figured out how to handle it really well so yeah alan v furrow Mm. Cool. Trisha, what about you? What have you been watching? Yeah, so um, I just watched My Salinger Year, which uh, just came out on VOD. And it is an adaptation of a memoir by Joanna Rakoff, directed by Philippe Falladrope. Oh, and it stars Margaret Qualley and Sigourney Weaver. It's a memoir, so it's you know, based on a true story by this young woman. She was young, you know, in the 1990s and was talking about Weren't we all young in the 90s? Um, But (laughs) she moved to New York City and she became the assistant to a literary agent there. Um, And like the literary agent is played by Sigourney Weaver. She's a very old school literary agent who's super suspicious of technology. So like it's 1995, but the entire office looks like it's like Mad Men era. (laughs) And they're like typing on typewriters and like using dictaphones and everything. (laughs) And because... Sigourney Weaver won't let them use computers and stuff. And it's this very old school literary agency that still represents J.D. Salinger in the 90s. You know, it becomes Margaret Qualley's job in the movie to like basically write form letters to people who try to write to J.D. Salinger. And so it's sort of about her relationship with like reading the letters of people who are trying to write to J.D. Salinger. And he's this weird old recluse, you know, who is like not really in the movie because he lives like in Vermont or somewhere in a cabin. But it's kind of just about her processing like what it means to be a writer and what she wants is sort of this like coming of age, young 20s kind of thing and her relationship with Sigourney Weaver. And you see in reviews of it, which, you know, are coming out now that's like people are like, this is kind of like the Devil Wears Prada, only not at all, because it's just very (laughs) (laughs) it's not a comedy. Right. It's like about her relationship with her boss, kind of. But it's not a comedy. It's not even really like a heavy drama. It's just kind of this charming little exploration of like a little time of life. And with like 
with with just sort of this lovely New York in the looks like it's the 60s, but is apparently the 90s kind mm-hmm. of veneer over it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very beautifully shot. But yeah, I was watching it and the person I was with was like, what year is this? <laughs> like, Because it doesn't tell you it's 1995 until like 20 minutes in. But mm-hmm. you you truly have no idea where you can't place anything that's going on. It's very charming. So I'm not going to say it's like a white knuckled thrill ride or <laughs> hilarious. It's neither one of those things. <laughs> but I will watch Margaret Qualley and Sigourney Weaver do nearly anything. And so right. they're they're great cool. in this. Yeah. Nice. Does Margaret Qualley do any like flips? She does do a little bit of dancing. And really? I was like, oh, oh she's so going to cool. do some dancing now. I'm into it. Excellent. Uh, Trisha's description of this movie feels like so many other what is she watching? Like it came out of Brian's uh, <laughs> random generator. All right. <laughs> this is so perfect. <laughs> right. We should, we'll put the link to the random generator in this episode too. People need to re- revisit that. This is a new movie that just came out on VOD <laughs> that everybody can enjoy. It's not that random. It's not from like the 70s, only available <laughs> like by Torrance. Yeah. I didn't hallucinate <laughs> this movie. <laughs> Although it kind of sounds like I did. But what a great movie to hallucinate. Thank you. So I watched Okja, because I recently did this crazy binge of Bong Joon-ho movies, and it is such a weird movie. And it was really interesting because I only knew of it kind of peripherally when Netflix was, they were really excited that they had a movie, right? This was, I think, one of their first movies, and they were like, Oscar movie, give it to us. And so I went in with that in mind that, oh, it's like a prestige, like serious Oscar movie that's like about animal (laughs) rights and things. So I was prepared for kind of like a somber, serious, like beautiful (laughs) exploration of stuff. It's Bong Joon-ho. But then I also knew that it was a Bong Joon-ho movie. And so I was like, but what is it? So what's it? And it was, I honestly don't have words for it. It's bonkers. (laughs) I love it. I love Okja. It's unlike any movie that I've ever seen before. Tilda Swinton is great. Jake Gyllenhaal is so weird. Like, the performances are so... Yes. Like, I don't know. It made me kind of question everything I knew about everything, I guess. (laughs) Like, what's intentional? What is, like, falling flat? Right. Like, there were a lot of scenes where it felt like maybe Bong Joon-ho was just like, Jake... Just go. Just turn it to 11 and do whatever you want to do. And sometimes it worked great and sometimes it was kind of awkward. And so it was just a very strange experience that I think ultimately I liked overall. But it's rare that I see a movie where I have no idea like what bucket to put it in. I like there's nothing else like Okja. So if you ever want that experience, Okja. <laughs> it's, it's a movie that you can watch. Period. Yeah. Okja. I really like Okja. It is very fun. But you got to get on its wavelength if you can. Yeah, right. you got to get on board. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Cool. Well, this has been our conversation about the pilot of Breaking Bad. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and to our wonderful editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayotos. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. We're done when I say we're done. 